Let's pray together. Father, we're so grateful that we can come together this morning to praise and worship you and fellowship with one another. Uh, we rejoice and thank you uh, for the birth of Chloe Kirkpatrick recently and your blessing to her parents, Katie and Halston. And just this morning, uh, for the birth of Mary James Rourke, to Wynn and Mary Catherine, and grandparents Jim and Phyllis Ferrer. Um, we're so grateful uh, for how you bless these families, and we just uh, rejoice. This morning, we're going to particularly lift up John Stakely and the Ministry of Unbound Grace, an arm of your church and a blessing to our community. We pray that you would empower their team as they help men and women find freedom from alcohol and substance use disorder by experiencing spiritual health through relationship with Christ and community with others. Father, we pray for Henry this morning. Not only as he preaches to us um, your word this morning, but for his pastoral and administrative leadership for our missions ministry as we gather, grow, and go in your name into all things. Um, give Henry wisdom. We pray that you would energize our entire congregation, that you inspire us to steward uh, our lives uh, in such a way to be that blessing uh, to all here in the Birmingham community and in our country and around the world that you saved us to be. So uh, please, Lord... Uh, Move us all in that direction. Um, help us um, as we make those changes by your Spirit. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning. I'm Henry Morris, Assistant Pastor. Um, this morning we're going to be looking at 1 Peter chapter 3. On October 16th of 1555, two men, Hugh Latimer, who was formerly a bishop of Worcester and later preacher in London in the court of King Edward VI, and another man named Nicholas Ridley, a bishop of London who supported Lady Jane Grey instead of Bloody Mary to come to the throne, were both burned at the stake in Oxford. You can still see the place on the street where they were burned. Latimer was about 70 years old, and Ridley was in his early 50s. And after Mary's accession to the throne, they were both arrested. Then in September, after spending months in the Tower of London alongside Archbishop Cranmer, they were both brought to trial, and Latimer gave this sort of piercing and straightforward attack on Rome as the persecutor of Christ's true church. So the verdict of their trial was never really in doubt. According to history today, Ridley came to the, the pyre, the place where they would be burned, in a sharp-looking black gown, and Latimer came in a shabby old garment, which he took off to reveal a shroud. Ridley kissed the stake, and both men knelt. They had to listen to a 15-minute sermon, giving them an opportunity to repent of their sins, which neither one of them did. 
And as the fire took hold, Latimer died pretty quickly, the older gentleman, and Ridley, the wood was above his head, so he, he died very slowly, and he kept crying out, Lord, have mercy upon me, I cannot burn. And Archbishop Cranmer, who was made to watch, was put to death later that year. But right before their execution, you've heard this before, but Latimer, who was more courageous, said to the younger and more afraid Ridley, be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as shall never be put out. Throughout the history of God's people, from Noah to Daniel to the heroes of faith that we read about in chapter 11 of Hebrews this morning, to Stephen in the New Testament and all the apostles, even down to our day, the followers of Yahweh have suffered for their belief in Him. And so this morning in this passage, Peter is writing to believers who are suffering because of their faith. So let's read together. Last week, Josh preached on these first verses in italics, but they go together, so I'm going to read them again. Hear now God's Word. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which He went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as the removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to Him. All flesh is like grass, and all its glory is like the flower of the field. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is Your Word. It's what You want us to hear and think about this morning, uh, the suffering of saints through the centuries and persecution and how... Lord, You want us to honor You in all that we do and in all our ways. And so we pray that You would give us insight into Your Holy Word as we look at this passage this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. What suffering is this passage talking about? Josh last week said there's two kinds of suffering we face in this world. First, there is the common suffering of all humanity. This is just the suffering of living in a fallen world, sickness, disease, death, disabilities, um, car wrecks, uh, your washing machine breaks down, all sorts of difficulties we face, relational difficulties, divorce, strained relationships, betrayal. We experience difficulties in our work. 
We have disappointments that things may not have gone out like we thought they would, or perhaps financial setbacks or economic downturns where we lose our job. That's the common suffering of all humanity, but that's not really what Peter's talking about in this passage. Peter is talking about a specific kind of suffering. Peter is talking about suffering for being a Christian, suffering uh, for righteousness. Um, Peter says in verse 17, it's better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. You see, this is what Peter's readers were experiencing. Fifteen times in this letter, the word suffering is used. Two more times, the word trial is used. Six times, Peter talks about suffering for doing good. So what's happening is that Christianity was new in, in the Roman world and in the Jewish world, and Christians were getting basically persecuted from both those angles. They were forcing, or they were experiencing uh, hostility in the form of abuse and slander and ridicule and accusation and denigration. We don't read of martyrdom yet, but that would come later. So what, how do we relate to this passage? Where, where does suffering occur in our day? Well, first of all, I hope you know this that many of our brothers and sisters around the world right now are suffering intensely for their faith. Many are being put to death. Many are being mistreated. Many are suffering economic loss. Uh, Many are being imprisoned for their faith. There's all kinds of difficulties that our brothers and sisters are facing. But in the West, where we live, uh, we don't suffer for our faith near in the same way. I don't know that I have ever suffered for my faith at all in my life. So what do we, we're going to talk about what do you do with a passage like this. We do see some things in the West, and I think some of the places where suffering happens are particularly at universities. In the university world, Christianity is often openly mocked. Students are lectured on the myth of absolute truth. Christian students are regularly ridiculed for their faith and and told that their faith is both childish and not welcome in the university classroom. So that does happen in our nation. And then in corporations, I think we're seeing this, that more and more corporations are bowing to societal pressure, to virtue signal, and conform to the latest societal ideologies. Um, And a lot of times that doesn't bode well for Christians because they don't feel comfortable towing the company line in those situations. Then there's like social situations where there's a majority of just non-believers and Christianity is not sort of welcome there, or we might think of politics and national debate. Christianity is not welcome. Um, uh, are just all kinds of ways that Christians experience sort of belittlement. I remember at Mercer University when I was the RUF campus minister, at that time they allowed us to stuff mailboxes about upcoming events, and we were having a speaker, and he was going to speak on sexual purity. And one of our girls was in there stuffing the box, boxes, and I could, another guy came in, and she said, hey, why don't you come to RUF this Wednesday night? Uh, this guy's going to be talking on sexual purity. <laughs> and the guy said to her, I don't want to come to a lecture and hear a guy tell me I can't do all the things I want to be doing. <laughs> so that's the kind of, like, belittlement and just awkwardness that Christians face Uh, in our world. And a lot of times we do feel pressure to conceal or compromise or conform or just not, you know, conceal our faith, not mention it. Uh, 
And so we come to verse 18 in this morning in our passage. 17 is the context. It's better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. But then he gets to verse 18. It begins with the word for. This is a connecting word. Last week, Josh talked about all these commands. How are we to respond? Do not fear. In your hearts, honor Christ as Lord. Be ready to give a defense for your faith. Be humble, gentle, and respectful. And uh, Peter is very concerned with us honoring Christ in the way we live in this world. This week, the passage is more about why we should suffer for doing good, the for, the reasons, and what is it that will help us to face suffering well. And the short answer is this, because of Christ's victory and because of your salvation. Those are the two things we need to think about in our suffering is Christ's victory and our salvation. So let's look at those this morning as these two main points. Um, Look at what it says about Christ's victory and His suffering. Uh, Four things. First, uh, remember uh, Jesus' crucifixion and death. Um, In His crucifixion and death, Jesus demonstrated His power over sin. Verse 18 says, for Christ suffered also once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God. How did Christ display His power over sin? Uh, here we're told that Jesus suffered death, and then in His death, that His death was final, and it was penal, it was substitutionary, and it was effective. Jesus' death was final. He suffered once for sins. In the Old Testament, sins had to be brought over and over and over. But when Christ came to be the perfect Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, there was no more need for sacrifice. So He suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. It's the same Greek word with a negative particle in the front of it. Jesus was righteous, we are not. He suffered in our place. It was substitutionary. Jesus' death was effective. It brought us to God. So this passage first grounds your willingness to suffer and my willingness to suffer unjustly for the sake of Christ in the fact that Jesus willingly suffered unjustly for our sake so that He might bring us to God. Secondly, we see this about, that is true about Jesus. In His resurrection, He triumphed over death. The last part of verse 18 says that He was put to death in the flesh but made alive in the Spirit. There's actually a lot of debate over this phrase, but I think the best way to take it is the first phrase, he was put to death in the flesh, refers to Christ's life and crucifixion and burial, and the second refers to his resurrected life. The resurrection is also going to be mentioned in verse 21. So in the resurrection, Jesus Christ triumphed over death. He was raised to new life. Death could not hold him. It had no claim on him. When my daughter went to Nepal one summer for a mission trip, she was able to take part and watch a Hindu funeral. And it was down by a river, and they had the mourning party there surrounding the body, and they put the body up on a big stretcher, and they burned it, and then they took it down and dumped it in the river. And there was wailing and crying, and mourning, and grief, and hopelessness. 
And she was so struck by it. Believers in Christ, we don't have that hopelessness. Jesus Christ came to defeat death. And in his resurrection, he displayed his power over death. And Peter is calling us to remember that. We serve a risen, victorious Savior who has triumphed over death, who has the key of death and Hades. A third thing we see, not only his crucifixion and his resurrection, but thirdly, in the Spirit, Christ went and proclaimed victory over his spiritual enemies. I'm going to read verse 19 and 20 again. It says this, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. This passage is really confusing. Verse 19, we ask these questions. Where did Christ go? When did Christ preach? To who did Christ preach in this passage? And what did he preach to them? Uh, Maybe the summary question is, what do these verses actually mean? I want to quote Martin Luther. Martin Luther said, this is a strange text and certainly a more obscure passage than any other passage in the New Testament. I still do not know what the apostle meant. (laughs) Uh, Some interpreters believe that this is the most difficult passage in all the New Testament because it has theological issues, lexical issues, grammatical issues, um, literary background issues, um, all sorts of textual issues. It has lots of different issues. There's lots of different reading. Karen Jobes, a commentator, said there is a labyrinth of exegetical options in this text, each of which has no claim to certainty. <laughs> so I want to thank Robbie for giving me this passage. And really, I'm going to throw Josh under the bus because he wanted to swap. He was supposed to preach this week, and I was supposed to preach last week. So, Josh, if you're watching on video, um, this, this verse has been confusing. Uh, and how do you approach a passage like this? What do, we, what do we do when we come to a passage like this? I just want to say we always approach the Bible humbly. Richard Pratt in seminary used to always drill in our heads Look, when you take a year and a half of Greek or two years of Greek or Hebrew, you know just enough to be dangerous. So don't go out there and start making all these pronouncements about the Greek and Hebrew language when you have scholars that have studied the Bible their entire lives and they are on different sides of the issue. So we always need to be humble in our coming to the text. And we should also be thankful because our interpretation of this passage, our understanding of the Word of God does not rise and fall on this passage. There are many things in the Bible that are absolutely clear. The Bible is fundamentally and basically a clear book, and the way of salvation through Jesus Christ is really clear. Uh, That being said, here there have been three primary schools of interpretation uh, on on this passage. The first is this, is that Christ descended into hell and preached to the spirit of those who were alive, humans, alive in the days of Moses. I mean, excuse me, Noah. Um, Some say giving them an opportunity for repentance. A second view is that Christ preached in the Spirit through Noah. That that's the preaching in the Spirit that's being talked about. It's Noah's preaching to the people of his day. And a third view is that Christ went to the depths of the earth and proclaimed his victory over the spirits in prison who were fallen angels who were in the days of Noah influencing people to evil. And I think number three is best for several reasons. Uh, first, the word for spirits here in the Greek uh, 
is when it's used alone, it's never used for humans. It's always used for evil spirits. And the word for preaching here is not the word for evangelism. It, it's basically the word herald. It means to proclaim or tell something. Uh, there's also Jewish traditions around the time. People were familiar with the Noah story and um, about angels having disobeyed God and being punished and imprisoned. So that was in the background. His readers knew about it. We don't. And then Jude 6 says this, And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority but abandoned their proper dwelling, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. So I think it's best to take that third view um, that Christ went and proclaimed victory. After his resurrection, he went and proclaimed victory to these fallen angels who were in prison. And think about if you're Peter's readers and you're being persecuted and you're suffering and you're suffering and you believe in the forces of good versus the force of evil, how encouraging would this be for Peter to tell you, you know what your Savior Jesus did? He went and proclaimed his victory over all these fallen spirits in prison. And in the last day, he's going to totally vanquish all his enemies. But we serve a victorious and risen Christ. That's what he's saying. We serve uh, a Christ who has subjected all these evil forces to himself, and anything coming at you is subject to Christ's rule. And the last thing we see is about Jesus' ascension. The fourth thing we see about Jesus is in his ascension, he is vested with all power as the Lord of the universe. Verse 22 says, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Believers in Christ, this is what we believe, that when Jesus Christ rose and ascended into heaven and they saw him go into heaven, that all powers, angels, and authorities have been subjected to Jesus. So the whole point is this, Jesus, Jesus Peter's making to his readers, is that in Jesus' suffering and death, he was eminently victorious. His death, resurrection, and ascension were a triumph over all the forces of evil. His suffering was not a defeat, but a victory. And so Peter's telling them that they need to identify with this risen Christ if they're going to follow in his steps, and that's what he's saying to us today. We need to identify with our risen Savior who's triumphed over evil and death and is sitting at the right hand of God, and follow him when we face opposition and evil in our lives. We're to live that out. We are to be on Jesus' side. It's better to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Accept that suffering. So what are some points of application? Think about some points. First is this, theology matters. Did you notice the answer that Peter gives his readers for suffering? When it comes to suffering, Peter's answer is this, Christ suffered for sins. He was put to death in the flesh but made alive in the Spirit. He went and preached victory over the spirits of the underworld, and Jesus went to heaven. He gives them this deeply Christological answer for their suffering. We might think he would have said something else. Several weeks ago, I preached on Acts 2. It was actually the exact same sermon because it talked about Jesus' miracles, his death and crucifixion, his resurrection, and his ascension to be Lord of the universe. Peter's, re Peter's reusing that sermon right here. Um, but think about that. It's, it's what a theological answer to suffering that Jesus 
has triumphed over all the powers of sin and death. So the point is this. Theology matters. This is a very doctrinal answer. One of my favorite jokes. True story. Wayne Herring, who spoke at General Assembly, was driving through North Mississippi listening to his radio, and on the radio he heard a preacher preaching, and the preacher was saying, you don't need doctrine, you just need to believe in Jesus. You don't need seminary education, we don't need all these ivory tower theologians telling us this and that and this about the Bible, you just need Jesus. And he said, true statement. As a matter of fact, I'm praying that God will make me ignoranter and ignoranter. <laughs> and Wayne Herring said, brother, I think he's answering your prayer. John Piper says, good doctrine makes better saints. We come from a long tradition that says that knowing is for living and that it's orthodoxy, thinking correctly, that leads to orthopraxy, living correctly. So don't ever be ashamed. Don't ever be ashamed of being doctrinal. Peter is eminently doctrinal in a very pastoral situation, people suffering. So theology matters. Another thing we could say from this passage is in our suffering, Peter is calling us to remember whose side we're on. I grew up, a friend of mine named Lehman, some of you know, was one of my best friends growing up. He lived at the top of the hill. Between our house and Lehman's house, there was two foes. One was named Stanley. I'm not changing his name to protect the innocent because he wasn't innocent. Uh, and the other was a dog named Rascal. So whenever I wanted to go up to my friend Lehman's house, I had to go past these two, one person and this dog. Rascal was a terrier, and he would bite you. He would come after you. And so I finally realized that what I needed to do was I would call Lehman and say, hey, can you come down and get me? And then walk me back up the hill. Some of you know Lehman. He played football at Southern Mississippi. He's a big guy. And Lehman would come down. And when I walked up the hill, I was never scared. That's what Peter's saying. That's kind of a silly illustration. Peter's saying, in your suffering, the victorious Christ who has ascended to the right hand of God is on your side, and he is with you. So remember that, believers. The victorious Christ is on our side. A mighty fortress is our God. Did we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Thus, ask who that may be. Christ Jesus is he, and he must win the battle. Amen. So, a third point of application. We need to grow in submission to the suffering that God does bring in our lives. John Piper gave a series of pastoral biographies, and his one on Charles Simeon, he said this, in April 1831, Charles Simeon was 71 years old. He'd been the pastor of Trinity Church in Cambridge, England for 49 years. And one day he was asked by one of his friends how he had surmounted persecution and outlasted all the great prejudice against him in his 49-year ministry. And Charles Simeon said this, my dear brother, we must not mind a little suffering for Christ's sake. When I'm getting through a hedge, if my head and shoulders are safely through, I can bear the prickling of my legs. Let us rejoice in the remembrance 
that our holy head has surmounted all his suffering and triumphed over death. Let us follow him patiently. We shall soon be partakers of his victory. That's exactly what Peter's saying. We shall soon be partakers of Christ's victory. And I should say a word about other suffering, because this passage, though it's not talking about suffering of humanity, it can bear on our human suffering. How is that? Well, as one uh, commentator said, a cancer diagnosis for the sake of Christ and with the hope of Christ can turn suffering into genuine cross-bearing. So though this is not specifically about human suffering, it can be what we need in human suffering, that when we are suffering as a human in this world, we can remember Christ's victor- victory over all sin and death, and that He is going to help us in the end. You know, uh, you may have heard this, but R.C. Sproul, as he approached death, this greatly ministered to me. R.C. Sproul, as he approached death, people ask him how he was making it. Do you know what his answer was? He said, every day I pray the Lord's Prayer and recite the Apostles' Creed. You see what R.C. Sproul's doing? <laughs> he is remembering this Jesus and His victory over sin and death. Another point of application, we should remember our brothers and sisters around the world who are suffering deep persecution. We should remember them in prayer. We should go to sites like Voice of the Martyrs or persecuted, the Persecution, persecution Project or Open Doors, be aware of what's going on with them and pray for them. Um, There's actually one more big point. The first point is remember Jesus. The second point is remember our salvation. I'll go really quick. Two things about this. Um, The verse on baptism is a little bit confusing, but one, at least one possible interpretation of this verse on baptism is this, is that Peter's telling his readers, uh, if you want to keep a good conscience, remember the pledge you made at your baptism to follow Jesus Christ. Jesus said, count the cost of following Him. In our baptism, we willingly entered into this good versus evil fight. Uh, And so, He's not so much reminding them that baptism removed their moral filth once for all, which is true, but here He's reminding them that at their baptism, they pledged to live for Jesus. Uh, Don't you see how this is important to Peter's argument, Uh, that it's better to suffer unjustly for doing good than evil? He's reminding them that they've pledged themselves to live for God. And there's one more thing. In verse 18, Christ suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God. He said, remember who Jesus is, remember who's with you, remember our salvation. And the last point of remembering our salvation is this, Jesus died to bring you to God. Christ's suffering was unique. It it is Jesus' suffering that gives us as believers access to the very presence of God. And so as we come to the table this morning, the message is come with great confidence. Your Savior died for you because He has a deep love for you, and He died so that you can have a relationship with your heavenly Father, with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So come with great confidence and courage. Let's pray.
Lord Jesus, thank you that you have opened up a way of access to your very presence and to the throne of God for us. We pray that we might, as your followers, um, suffer well and suffer in a way that brings you glory. We do pray for the persecuted church that you would minister to those who are suffering. And now, Lord, we pray that as we come to this table that you might pour out your spirit here and grant us your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.